Lilia Morris, uh, 1862 to 1929, uh, was a lady who was prolific in writing uh, poetic verse. Uh, and they estimate that she wrote over a thousand uh, poetic verses of a, of a Christian nature. Some of them she turned into tunes. Uh, and a lot of them she did while she was doing her housework. I just made a logical deduction when I was reading her story. Um, I wonder how her house looked. If your wife was cleaning during the day and you're at work and she's writing a thousand songs, just kind of wonder just how well she was doing at the vacuuming. Just kind of wondering. Uh, one of the songs that she wrote, uh, one of my all-time favorites, uh, is the question, what if it were today? Speaking of the, the Lord's arrival, uh, and in case you don't know it, this is an old hymn. Uh, here's, here are the lyrics. Jesus is coming to earth again. What if it were today? Coming in power uh, and love to reign. What if it were today? Coming to claim his chosen bride, all the redeemed and purified over this whole earth scattered wide. What if it were today? You know the chorus? No one knows the chorus. Okay, I'll pray for you. Um, <laughs> the chorus is glory, glory with exclamation. Uh, joy to my heart will bring glory, glory when they shall crown him king. Glory, glory, haste to prepare the way. Glory, glory, Jesus will come one day. Indeed, he will. Uh, and he's going he's gonna to deal with sin and evil. Uh, and his, his kingdom is going to be established. But the first thing he's going to do, as we've seen from Thessalonians, um, is he's going to rapture his church out of here. Uh, and that rapture of the church, as we studied back in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, is an imminent event. As I've said, nothing needs to happen for the Lord to appear. He could come at any moment. So her question is really the question that you should be singing while you're doing your yard work, housework, etc. And if Jesus were to, come, were to come back today, would I change anything? Would I modify anything? Or would I just keep doing what I'm doing because I'm following hard after him? So Paul takes uh, that motif, what if it were today, and tells you what you should do in light of Christ's arrival. That's uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He uh, applies the, that motif uh, to this question and answers it uh, in verses 12 and following. So we've seen he answers it in three, three quadrants. Number one, he says, in light of uh, the Lord's coming, you have a duty toward your leadership of your local church. Uh, and that, that duty that you have toward them is to follow church leadership. Um, and so you have to stop and look at yourself and say, uh, am I doing that? Do I follow leadership? Because uh, when you follow leadership, there's unity in the body. You head towards spiritual maturity. And the church is a, is a gospel, a light to the community. Um, the first church I worked in as a, as a youth pastor in San Diego, uh, the, Pat, the founding pastor got throat cancer. Uh, while he was uh, in the hospital, the church fired him. Loving church, isn't it? And then, I, and then I went to work there one summer when I, to do an internship when I was in Dallas Seminary. And so they assigned me the job of going door to door and interviewing people and inviting them to come to the church. I cannot tell you how many people in the community who never even went to that church knew the story of that church. Oh, yeah, aren't you the church that fired the pastor while he was in hospital? Yeah, yeah, it's that church. But it's a new pastor. But yeah, it's, yeah, it's that church. Um, is that a Christian activity? No, you don't sound convinced. Yeah. yeah, okay, I'll try never get to sick, you know. That's not the way a Christian rolls, right? And so you have a duty toward leadership, and that's, that's not what you want to do because then the community knows about it, and then they're not going to want to go to church because, wow, that's the way the world operates. A duty toward other uh, followers, whether they're a Christian or a non-Christian, you have a duty to Christians first and foremost. 
non-Christians secondarily. Uh, but if you look at verses 14 to 15, he gives you um, commands, not suggestions, that should be your uh, ex exhibition of Christian virtues to those about you. You can read what those were. We looked at verses 16 and 22. He digs into uh, the third quadrant. You have a duty toward the Lord. Prior to his coming, a duty toward the Lord Jesus himself. So uh, verse 16, he said, you have the uh, one imperative was you have the, the duty to remain um, joyous in your Christian walk. So, so are you? I mean, does your family see your joy? Do your children see your joy? Do you have joy um, wherever you are working? Uh, it, he also says you should be praying more often than not. We talked about that last week. Uh, it should be your habitual lifestyle that you pray. Uh, and that also you should be thankful in what God sends your way because he's sovereign in all of those things. Those are three hard areas to work on. But he said, that's your duty until Christ comes back. So these are not simple things. And they're things we trip up on, well, daily, isn't it? Now we want to move on to uh, command number four. Uh, command number four uh, is in verse 19 where he says, quench not the spirit. Quench not the spirit. Uh, this, the phrase, the spirit, with the article in front of it, it's not uh, indefinite where there's no article, the. Uh, quench not the spirit is a reference uh, to the third person of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Uh, and in John chapter 14, Jesus, uh, prior to his crucifixion, uh, promised the disciples that he would send to us another comforter, uh, another comforter. Uh, and in Greek, there's two ways to say another, not like in English. In English, we just have one word for another. In Greek, they have two. Uh, why? Well, um, the word heteros, like heterosexual, heteros, uh, means another of a different kind. Alos, the other word for another, is another uh, of the same kind. So when Jesus says, I'm going to send to you an, another comforter, he doesn't use heteros, another of a, of a different kind. He uses alos, another of the same kind. Why is that significant to study grammar this early in the morning when you're still asleep? Because alos means another of the same kind. So Jesus says, I'm leaving and I'm going to send you another one just like me. A divine one is coming. So when the Holy Spirit did come uh, in Acts chapter 2 at, at Pentecost, uh, it was the divine Holy Spirit who came. And who did he come to? He came to Christians. Uh, that, that's, that's who arrived. And we want to dig into that. John chapter 14, verse 17 uh, tells us, uh, if you keep reading the text, this is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him, but you as a Christian know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. Uh, never to desert you, as we're going to see. So when uh, the spirit was coming, Jesus says, uh, you're going to know him as a Christian because you're going to have him. He's going to abide with you. And aren't you glad that he's with you during the, during the day? And he's the one who helps you rejoice, uh, be thankful. He's the one that helps you pray, etc. cetera. He, he's in your life. So what does the Holy Spirit do for believers? Um, well, it says that when he comes, he will be um, um, a a paraclete, uh, a comforter, a comforter. The word paraclete uh, that Jesus uh, uses in John chapter 14, verse 16, uh, is, a, is a word which denotes somebody who is your advocate, um, your defense attorney, like your intercessor. And you don't have to pay him. You ever hired an attorney? Yeah, I mean, just open up your checkbook and it, it's expensive. The Holy Spirit, he, he's there to defend you. He's your advocate 24-7. Why is he my advocate? Well, because uh, your uh, adversary, the devil, constantly walks around seeking whom he can devour. He's constantly, according to Job chapter 1, 
uh, he's constantly in First John chapter two verse one. He's he's constantly in the Lord's throne room, which is the place the devil has access to, is the heavenly throne room to bring accusation against the Christian, against you. This is what he does. This is what his name means. And when the devil steps up to take uh, issue with you with something that you have done, you have an advocate, an attorney who steps in and says, whoa, yeah, but you don't understand. And he begins to defend you. That uh, advocate, that parakletos, uh, is the Holy Spirit. Um, John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, interesting text. We studied this when we went through John. John says, my little children, I'm writing you about these things so that you may not sin. And if anyone, as a Christian, he says, does sin... Uh, what happens? Well, the devil then automatically takes issue with that. In fact, basically your Christian life is trying not to keep the Holy Spirit too busy. Are you following me? Yes. You understand? So if anyone sins as a Christian, we have a what? A paraclete uh, a, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So who's the paraclete? Who's to say the Holy who, Who's the paraclete here? Jesus is paraclete. You got double duty. You have two attorneys. Do you understand this? So that when you sin, because um, are you going to sin this week? Yeah. You probably won't necessarily want to, but you're going to sin. And when you do sin and the devil then steps in and goes, see, they did it again. I told you, they totally weaken this area. I get them every time. That's when uh, the, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit steps in. That's when Jesus, the paraclete, steps in. And they are your defense attorney. Again, the goal of the Christian life is to do what? Not keep them very busy. Right? Which means you're pursuing holiness. Uh, when did you receive the Holy Spirit? This is Bible trivia time. When did you receive the Holy Spirit? At the moment of what? Salvation. Salvation. You got the Holy Spirit. Because prior to that, you were spiritually dead. Um, Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 5, Paul says, Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. Notice the prepositional phrase, through or by means of the Holy Spirit who was given to who? You. Yeah, at, at when? At, well, at the moment of faith. Because if you back up in chapter 5 to verse 1, he talks about how Christians are justified by their faith. Not their works, but by their faith in Jesus. So when you got saved in God's courtroom, he brought down the gavel and said, um, I, I just forgave you of all sin, past, present, and future. You now have my holiness, and your faith in my son justifies you. And by the way, he says, I poured out within your heart. I mean, poured out, not a little drip, a little drop. He said, I poured the Holy Spirit uh, into your life at that precise moment. Um, so, so what did he do when he showed up? Well, number one, he mystically baptized you into the body of Christ into the, the church of the body of Christ, composed of anybody who trusts Christ as Savior. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, he talks about that. Uh, he, he baptized you. He indwells you uh, constantly, 24-7. Um, according to Ephesians 1.13, at the moment of salvation, he sealed you. Because back in the day, when they had a document they wanted to protect, like a legal document, you would put a seal on it, like a um, wax with an uh, indentation of like a ring, a signet ring, and you would seal that to know that this thing is protected until it's opened. And he says, your Holy Spirit is your, is your seal until the day of redemption. This is why, I, this is another side note, this is, this is why I believe in eternal security, by the way. Because who seals you? The Spirit. How long does he seal you? He seals you till the day of redemption. And Paul talk, talks about that in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 30 uh, in great detail. He's not going anywhere. He's holy, and he calls you to holiness. And when you don't uh, follow him, uh, then you grieve him, as Paul's going to talk about in chapter 4. But he, he seals you. 
Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, Paul talks about the fact that um, we Christians have one baptism. One. One baptism. He's not talking about the physical baptism when you went under the water. He's talking about the mystical baptism when the Holy Spirit took you, the non-Christian, you were declared righteous in God's court of law by your faith, and then he baptized you mystically into the body of Christ. That, that's the major baptism. Your earthly baptism just merely showed what happened, right? And so he's done many things for you. So when you then take the Spirit's presence in your life and, and you yield to him, when he convicts you of sin and you pull away from it or confess it, when you yield to him, uh, you flourish. And you produce the fruits of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 5, verse 18. The fruits. When you resist him, and you know when you're doing this usually, when you resist him and you don't confess and you continue in your sin, you don't flourish, you founder, you fall apart. And so the goal of the Christian life is to yield to the Spirit's promptings uh, in your life. But then Paul says here in in Thessalonians, he says, in relationship to the Spirit then who indwells you, uh, who seals you, who baptizes you in the body, he gives you a command not to quench the Spirit. Uh, It is a present tense command in the Greek text. Um, And because it has the negative uh, attached to the the imperative, it means whenever you take a a negative, like no, and you wed it to an imperative, it forbids an action currently in progress. So what does that mean? I know it's early in the morning and grammar's, are you up yet? Uh, When you do that, you're forbidding action in progress. So what does that pragmatically mean? It means these Christians in this church were quenching the spirit. They were guilty of doing this. So what does it mean to uh, quench the spirit? The Greek word uh, quench, I'll, I'll just read it to you out of Freiburg's uh, Greek lexicon. It means to extinguish, uh, to put something out like a fire. Uh, figuratively, it means to stifle something, suppress something, or to restrain something. So how does that happen in your life? You ever extinguished the spirit of God in your life? Not that he leaves you, but you extinguish what he was trying to do. Uh, you ever put out the fire? Because he's likened unto fire in the New Testament. You ever put out the fire of the spirit in your life? You ever stifled what the spirit of God is doing in the church or in somebody else's life? You just put the kibosh on that? Well, how would you do that? So I'll just give you some ideas. Here are some of my ideas how Christians um, stifle the Holy Spirit's work. And this is not exhaustive by any means, but just some ideas to kind of prime the pump for you to think about. How do you stifle the Spirit, quench His Spirit? Number one, when He convicts you of a particular sin and you enjoy that sin and will not confess it, you then allow that sin to rule and reign in your life and you stifle the Spirit by definition who wants you to confess it. Number two, uh, you stifle the spirit when you argue against biblical truth. Ever ever come to a a, a verse that you read and you're thinking, I don't don't, don't really think I like that verse. That verse kind of bothers me. Be honest, right? And you're like, well, that's what the word of God says. Or you ever go to the sermon, you hear something, you're like, whoa, man, he's stepping on a spiritual nerve there. Not me, it's the spirit. But but, but you, you hear that and then you, but then you argue against it because you enjoy what you're doing. That stifles the spirit. Uh, when you tolerate and rationalize immorality in your life, uh, like they did in Thyatira, and if you read uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29, Christ castigates the Christians in the church for allowing immorality uh, from the culture to come into the church uh, and to codify it. And he's like, this, this is sin. And so that stifles the work of the spirit. Uh, when you have no passion for following hard after Christ, like the Laodicean church in Revelation 3, uh, you know, uh, you can love Jesus. You don't have to love Jesus. It's totally apathetic. No passion, no fire for Christ. This stifles the spirit. Uh, when we purposely and selfishly and arrogantly 
create division in the church like they did in Corinth. You know, if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you think the Bible's boring, you need to read it. Pay attention. Read it. What, what, what were the Corinthians doing? Uh, well, I mean, figure Paul founded the church, and what were they doing? They were arguing among themselves. And read chapter 1. They picked pastors that they liked, and ones that they thought were more gifted than other pastors. Well, I have, our, our particular Bible study follows Apollos. He's so erudite. His vocabulary, you need a dictionary when the man is speaking. He must be spiritual based on the words he uses. We don't know what he's talking about. Uh, Paul, uh, passionate, but, but very verbose. Uh, you know, uh, he, he doesn't know how to turn it off. A lot of his sentences are disjointed. He goes on rabbit trails all the time. Kind of hard to follow what the main motif of what he's trying to say. So uh, we don't follow Paul. But the other people are like, oh, no, we follow Paul. Man, he, he follows Jesus closely. And so they divided up in all these groups. And they, and they would fight about this at church. Do, do Christians do this? Not at our church. Yeah, we follow Pastor Michael, you know. Or pick another pastor on staff. Okay, we'll pray for you. But we're all gifted differently, but we're all working toward the same goal. But once you start dividing up, that's the devil. That, that stifles the spirit. Terrible to get a church pitted against itself over things, isn't it? Uh, we, get, we stifle the spirit. This is my last analysis. When you um, tie up unsuspecting, unsuspecting believers with legalistic uh, laws you've created. It's like, where does it say that in the Bible? Uh, uh, like, a, like a guy came to me one time at my last church and he told me, you know, I, I see that you don't use the, you don't use the King James. You use that, that God-forsaken New American Standard Bible. You, you got to get with the program and get on the King James or God won't bless this place. Huh? Do you? What? Yeah. And, and so I engaged the guy as to all the textual evidence for this, for that. Why, this is a great translation. That's great. I mean, I went through the whole thing with it. Didn't matter. I was reasoning with somebody who wasn't reasonable because he was a legalist. And if I didn't give in to what he was telling to me, well, then I was, you know, I was off course. Legalism. You ever run into that at church? Talk about something that stifles the spirit. Um, if you'd like to read more about legalism, uh, Chuck Swindoll has a book called The Grace Awakening. Excellent book. In this book, here's how he defines it. Legalism is an attitude, a mentality based on pride. That's right. True. It assumes it is an obsessive conformity to an artificial standard to exalt oneself. That's a truth. A legalist assumes the place of authority and pushes it to unwarranted extremes. Because once you step on that treadmill of the legalist, boy, he turns his speed up. Uh, uh, it results in illegitimate control requiring unanimity, not unity. He says the great weapon of authoritarianism, secular or religious, is legalism. Uh, the manufacturing and manipulations of rules for illegitimate control. Apply that to our government. Uh, perhaps the most damaging of all the perversions of God's will and Christ's work, legalism clings to the law at the expense of grace, to the letter of uh, the law in the place of the spirit of grace. It destroys grace. It destroys joy. So show me a legalistic church, and I'll show you the stifling of the Holy Spirit. You legalist, you're still worried about the fact that I don't use the King James. You're just not, you got your, oh, I can't believe it. I mean, yeah. Uh, wow. I, I've heard it all after, I don't know, 36 years of pastoring. I have heard it all from legalists in my life. Um, you know, unless the church gives 10% of its proceeds to missions, God's spirit will not bless this place. Uh, where's, where's that in the Bible? Well, that's just what I feel. 
Okay, well, it's not biblical truth. I mean, all the time you're having to sort through. You know, I mean, back in the day, your hair has to be so long. A guy's hair has to be so short. Dresses have to be so long. Makeup, no makeup. All this stuff, right? You are so quiet right now. <laughs> anyway, moving on. It's too convicting. So, are, are you guilty of stifling the Spirit of God in your life and in someone else's life? And if so, then ask God to forgive you of that because it's a command. Don't quench the Spirit. So, simple prayer today is, God... Uh, where in my life am I quenching the Spirit? And if you want to know a prayer he will answer forthrightly, just pray that one. Just get alone today. It's a, it's a humid free day, right? Go out in the yard, pick a chair, sit down and go, God, show me in my life where I stifle the Spirit. He'll show you. Command number five. Um, this one's interesting. He says, do not despise prophetic utterances. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Uh, the NIV says, do not treat prophecies with contempt. Uh, or do not despise prophecies in the New King James. So what we have here is a present tense uh, imperative wedded to a negative no. When you do that, what are you saying? It's a test. Were you here a few minutes ago? <laughs> when you take a negative and you wed it to an imperative, you stop an action in progress. So what were they guilty of? They were guilty of quenching the spirit. So am I guilty, Lord? And then now they're guilty of uh, they don't like certain prophecies that they hear at church. So we need to analyze this, this concept of prophecy. Exactly what, what is he talking about and how does that apply to us now? So I'm going to give you some things to think about. Number one, uh, the word prophecy, uh, prophetes, uh, is actually refers to a gift that the Spirit of God uh, gave to the church. And by the way, uh, if you were to ask me if I'm a charismatic, the answer is Yes. Uh, why am I a charismatic? Because all of the spiritual gifts that the Lord gives the church are called charisma, charismatic. And so uh, whatever spiritual gift you have is from the spirit. So it is charisma. So it's charismatic. Uh, and so the Holy Spirit has given you a, a gift or gifts uh, by his good hand and his grace on you. Uh, and as we see in 1 Corinthians 12, one of the gifts that he gave to the church was the gift of prophecy. Notice what the order of gifting. Uh, God has also appointed the church first because they're in order of, uh, of importance. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, and various kinds of tongues. So uh, the gift is spiritual to gift to prophesy, is what he says. Number two, some gifts, some of those spiritual gifts, from my viewpoint and my study over the years, were permanent and some were um, temporal. Why would I say that? Um, well, Let's think about the gift. He said the very first and prominent gift in the church is, according to Paul's list, apostleship. To be an apostle. You ever met an apostle? Is it possible to be an apostle today and fulfill the, the gifting of an apostle? I don't think so. Why? Because no man today meets the four criteria to be an apostle. Case in point. To be an apostle, a man must have had personal contact with Jesus. Nobody's raising their hand. Okay. Um, number two, uh, the man must have witnessed Jesus' resurrection. Anybody there? Um, that, that, and I, you can read all the texts that I supplied there. Um, number three, uh, Jesus must have appointed the man directly. And number four, the man must, man must have performed signs and wonders that are of biblical proportions. Right? Well, no one makes it past point one. Why am I showing you this? Well, because the gift of apostleship... Uh, was only temporal and not permanent for the church. Uh, and it's easily seen because nobody matches the criteria anymore. And here's the thing. If the very first most prominent gift was temporal, it's possible to extrapolate that the second gift was. What was the second gift? 
prophets, prophets. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 uh, says that the church was founded upon the apostles and the prophets. And the fact that the word prophets follows the word apostle and doesn't precede it means he's not talking about Old Testament prophets. He's talking about New Testament prophets. And so he says the church was founded on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So he's talking about the mystical body of Christ composed of all believers of all time from all you know, walks of life that trust Jesus. He says the church, that church was founded upon the apostles, whose gift has now passed, and the prophets. Okay, where I lived in California, where we bought a house, they were constantly building new homes. And so when every night when Liz and I go on a couple mile walk, uh, we would walk through all the new homes and we check out all the new homes. And, and we would, through all the, the, the tin can studs and everything they were doing, I don't even know how many people's homes we walked through. Just, you know, oh, this is cool. I like this layout. Oh, wow, this is kind of choppy. And we'd walk through the houses. But we watched how they built those foundations. So they would, they would uh, clear the land, and they would dig a, dig a pit. There's no uh, basements in California. You realize this? I was freaked out when I bought my house here. I'm like, whoa, there's another house under the house. Uh, <laughs> and in California, they don't do that. Why? Earthquakes. So anyway, back to my sermon. They dig, they dig a small pit. They backfill it with water. They let it sit there for like, you know, a couple of weeks. When it all dries up, then they, they bring in the cement, pour the foundation, etc. And then they build the house. How many times do you make, pour the foundation? Once. Once. He says that Ephesians 2.20, the church, was, the church, the mystical body of Christ, was founded upon the apostles, whose gift has now passed, and prophets. It was founded. So he's telling you by definition, it was not ever meant to be perpetual by definition of how it's constructed. Um, number three, New Testament prophets were in continuity with their Old Testament counterpart. I'll say that again. New Testament prophets, like Agabus, were in continuity with their Old Testament counterpart, it means they were the same. Old Testament prophet, New Testament prophet. Uh, Old Testament prophets and New Testament prophets had two components that they could do. Number one, uh, prophets engaged in forth-telling, F-O-R-T-H, forth Telling. That means they spoke with great power and conviction, like a Jeremiah, like an Isaiah. They spoke with great power and conviction. Dr. Hobart Freeman uh, was a, a scholar many years ago on the concept of uh, prophets, and this is what he says about them. Uh, he says the prophets, they were the divinely appointed moral and ethical preachers and teachers of true religion as revealed to Israel. It was their duty to admonish, to reprove, and to denounce prevailing sins, to threaten the people with the terrors of divine judgment, to call them to repent. They also brought the message of consolation and pardon. I mean, read any of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, pick one. And what you will find is they have great, powerful preaching to the people and to the nation. Forth-telling. They also did foretelling. F-O-R-E-T-E-L-L-I-N-G. Foretelling means they foretold the future with specificity. In fact, by the way, that is one of the reasons why I, I would believe it's really a smart thing to be saved. Because of all the books, the holy books in the world, only one has the ability to, to prophesy with specificity. That's the scriptures. Because I've studied that and, and compared them. These prophets foretold things that would happen concerning Israel. So you pick an, a prophet uh, like Isaiah uh, or, or uh, Obadiah or Nahum. They, they prophesied with great specificity of things that would happen. Like Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7. Uh, prophesied the rise of the major world empires till the coming of the, of the Antichrist with precision. Hundreds of years before those empires even existed. He prophesied the fall of the Babylonian Empire. 
He said exactly how it would be replaced by the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, he, he goes through all of these things. He then talks about how that would be replaced by the Grecian Empire. And that would be replaced by the Roman Empire. There's no way he could know these things unless God told him. So specific prophecies. Agabus in the New Testament uh, was uh, like an Old Testament prophet in that he could foretell truth and foretell the future. Uh, because that's exactly what he does in Acts 21 regarding Paul's trip to Jerusalem. If you go there, he tells Paul, they're going to chain you and it's going to be end of you. And he's a prophet. And that's exactly what happens to him. The book of Revelation, prophetic or not? Yeah, highly prophetic, especially when you get to chapter 4 uh, and dig into the prophecy. John is very prophetic. Uh, so uh, the scriptures close with the word of prophecy. But the church was founded based upon the apostles and the prophets. And these uh, New Testament prophets were very similar to their counterparts. So what is the, if the gift of apostleship is gone, prophets were there in the church at the day to give them a word of God before the canon was closed, before they had a Bible. Now that we have a Bible and the canon is closed, how does this particular, uh, how does this particular uh, command uh, apply to us? Well, here's how I look at it. Um, Jesus, according to Revelation 19.10, is the spirit of all prophecy. Jesus. That's the angel says so in, in Revelation 19.10. He's the essence of all prophetic utterance. Jesus is also the word, the living word, the word of God, uh, in John chapter 1 verse 1. If you take those two things, he's, all, he's the essence of all prophecy, and he's the living word, you can say that prophecy is the word of God. So what does this mean uh, to, to not despise a prophesying? Since I'm not one who believes in a modern day prophet, because if you claim to be a prophet today, you have to be exactly like an Old Testament prophet. You cannot dive, uh, bifurcate the two roles of foretelling and foretelling, which is what happens. You can't do that because they were both the same in both testaments. So when you look at today, what does this mean? It means a person who, who despises prophecy is really despising the word of God that is prophetic. It means you don't like what the Bible has to say because it bothers you. Uh, I'll give you some ideas. A person uh, despises the word because they find the word is, well, it's just, it's just too narrow and exclusive. Well, it is. Um, uh, it bothers some Christians because the word, it just seems too judgmental. And when it's judgmental, it makes me really uncomfortable. Well, it, it, it is judgmental. Um, uh, they find the word is not inclusive enough for anyone and everyone. Well, it is exclusive. You either come God's way or you don't come. Uh, people find that the it, word um, doesn't seem equitable. I mean, it's, everything should be fair. But when you read what it says uh, about how Jesus says we should function, he's going to reward you based upon your obedience to him. Some will get great reward. Some will get lesser reward. Some will get no reward, but they'll all walk into the kingdom. But not everybody gets a trophy. Why? Because it's all based on your obedience to Christ and the word. Some Christians have a hard time with that. Uh, some Christians read uh, the, the, through the Old Testament and they're disturbed based on the warfare motifs in the Old Testament. Wow. It's like heavy duty. God was ruthless. Uh, I wrote a, a, a paper on that, about a 55-page paper when I was uh, in, uh, or I did it for a professor uh, as a side study, my fourth year at DTS, the concept of holy war in the Old Testament. It's called hachrem, uh, because I wanted to know about that. I mean, how do we deal with that as a Christian? Um, some people, they can't wrap their minds around how that there's a heaven and a hell. And they're both eternal abodes for people based on the decision they make on earth. That just bothers some people. But the word of God is what the word of God says, isn't it? 
And so when you despise what the prophetic word has said, what the word says, you're pushing back against God. You ever argue with your Bible? Why are you laughing? I'm going to share with you kind of my world, kind of things I have to deal with, with people who take the world as a Christian and they try to bring it into the church. Okay? This is a real life illustration of somebody pushing back against the word. Uh, about a year ago, uh, I got a, a, an email from a lady. Uh, who said, uh, hey, I checked out the church, watched a bunch of sermons, loved the preaching. Uh, you know, I, I checked out the children's program. It looks like a great children's program. It looks like a great church. And then I went online and I was looking at the leadership of the church, the elder board, all the staff and everything like that. But I can't come there because it's not a diverse congregation. Huh? <laughs> Where do you even begin? Do we place people in positions of service, service here as a church based on your race? No. What, why are we putting you in positions in, of service inside the church? Based upon your spirituality, right? We care about the inner man. We're not looking at the outer man. And, and so I, I let this person know, you know, uh, look at all the diversity that we do have on the board. You know, uh, Puerto Rican. And we have all this diversity. We go, you know, uh, Hispanic, uh, Egyptian. I mean, look at all the diversity. Wasn't enough. I'm like, Serious. It's not enough. See, see the, how the legalist rolls? Because it, well, it's got to be more. So I can't go to that church. And I'm like, serious? We put people in positions of service or, or in the body based upon their, number one, they have a hunger to want to do it. And number two, do you fit the biblical criteria? So if you want to be on the elder board at the church, I don't, I don't look on the outside of you. We look at the inside. Why? It's what Paul says to do in 1 Timothy 3. Read it. It's the qualifications for an elder, and it's all internal stuff. What's your character like? The only thing that it says is external is you must be apt to teach the word of God. So do I care about skin color? No. What do we care about? Well, you. Who you are as a, as a follower of Jesus. Are you following hard after him? What's the culture want us to do? Well, Culture's doing this out here, so the church should do that. No, no, we don't. No, we do what the Word of God says. I don't know about you, but I'm not changing on that one. It's, this is the Word of God. This is how the church rolls. We look at a person's spiritual development. But there's that constant push from the culture to bend to the culture. I don't know about you, but I, I, I've been to Christ. I've been to the Word of God. But it's that kind of thing. Quenching the what? The Word. Making the word say something that it doesn't say. Um, I love our church. And, and we have wonderful diversity, don't we? I mean, it's amazing the diversity that has, has taken place in our church over the year. So I take it as a huge affront when somebody attacks that. Because that's not from God. That's from the devil. You have a job assignment today. I already worked on it this week in my life. Remember, you're heading out into the backyard today. You're going to find a chair. And you're going to have two prayers. You know what they are? They're for you, not for me. You know, don't, you know, show Marty where he's quenching the spirit. No, this is for you. <laughs> Lord, show me in my life where I'm quenching the spirit. Follow-up prayer. Lord, is there any area in my life where I'm pushing back against the word of God? Because of X, X amount of reasons. Show me in my life where I am not aligning my life with the word of God. And let me confess that to you. And let me move to obedience. Because that's maturity. And that changes the inner man. And then you grow up. It's time for brunch.
Yeah. Why don't you stand? We'll pray. Good to see you in church this morning. Let's pray. God, thank you. Uh, just for the word. It is extremely practical. Uh, we, we, we wrestle with it at times, if we're honest. Sometimes it's over our heads. Sometimes it's, uh, we totally get it. Uh, we thank you for the depth of the scriptures. Thank you for the shallow end of the scriptures. And may our lives be obedient to follow what you say, not what we think and feel, but to be obedient to the revelation of the word of God. And may we not be guilty of any way, shape, or form of stifling what your spirit wants to do in our lives because he wants to do great things until we see you again. In Jesus' name, amen.